You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Vision Live. For Real Vision, I'm Max Sweethy. I'm joined today by Matt Rao of Headwaters Volatility Solutions. But today, we're not exactly talking about that. We're, you're kind of putting your credit hat back on, throwing back to the old days for you. Yeah, I am. And I was spurred on um, by a comment that I read from Rao about uh, defaults and increase in defaults. And um, it really knocked me out of my chair to you know want to raise my hand and say i have something to say here because this is where the intersection of volatility credit and equity come together and it's something i'm passionate about and i might be one of 10 people that really am but um you know that's that's what i'd like to talk about today well wonderful yeah i always love when this happens uh because we do have such a mix of of an audience here some people are you know retail investors students trying to learn but we also have people like yourself professionals who, who keep up with our content and it's always very um inspiring when a piece sort of touches a nerve with both groups of people when the the you know the up-and-coming people, the learners, are like, I, I'm really learning a lot from this. And at the same time, you have a professional like yourself who says, you know, you're on to something here. Um, and I think that's that's kind of what we're going to talk about is, is you saw that piece from Raul talking about insolvency and said, you're on to something here. Um, but but Raul's a macro guy. He's trying to put all the pieces yeah. together. And we're really just going to examine that one piece of insolvency. So what is it that that you saw from him that you thought, you know, yes, he, he's really on to it here. And then and then what is it more that you think viewers need to understand? Yeah, so at a high level, what I think is really important is number one, I think he is onto something. And I think that the application of what he's onto is actually very important for all investors. And what we've experienced in the last decade is sort of moving further and further out on the risk tree and getting pushed by the Fed with monetary policy to take more risk and look for yield in ways that you might not have otherwise um, wanted to. And that's all a, a big part of the relative value framework. Um, and that's what we do at Headwaters as a normal course of business. So the reason why it touches a nerve for me is because I see and have seen investors taking more and more and more risk in ways that I am concerned they're not fully appreciating, um, which is not to say that they don't know it. It's just a matter of there are nuances to it that I watch and have watched for 20 years that I think are important. And I've sometimes felt like, you know, the guy on the outside of the room, like in the graduate banging on the wall, like, hey, somebody needs to pay attention to what's going on here. And that's kind of uh, was my reaction to, to hearing Raul's comment was, you know, like he's on to something. People should listen to this. And I'd like to chime in on why this is important. And um, and so just at a high level, why it's important is that a lot of the world is dominated, a lot of the investment world is dominated by large players in the space. And the way that a lot of the quantitative efforts look for cheapness, if I can use air quotes on, on live broadcast, um, is to say, you know, what's the distribution of stocks? And 
what we do, the way we look at volatility, if you've watched any of the other segments we've commented on, or you know, if anybody knows me, we think about volatility mainly from a distribution standpoint. What is it telling you about the potential for stocks to move up or down? And, and that's sort of the implied. And then realized volatility is what actually happened, right? So when you think about the potential distribution of stocks um, in a sort of elementary framework, you know, they can go up or they can go down. But what causes them to go up or down? And how do you assign probabilities to each of those movements? And then as you propagate out on what would be referred to as a binomial tree, you start to get like, you know, probabilistic determination of uh, movement in stocks. But where the default comes in that I think is extremely important is that there's a concept called a trinomial tree, um, which is used in stochastic credit modeling and some other you know, more high-level scientific um, uh, estimations of, of credit spreads and, and equity pricing. But to, to speak about it in plain English, um, because I'm not a PhD, I always have to translate this stuff for myself from people who are smarter than I am. Um, you really have to consider, you know, what's the potential that this company fails, right? You've got the potential that it goes up, you have the potential that it goes down in an organized statistical fashion, and then there's the potential that it fails. And there's, there is all also other, you know, events like a takeover or, you know, things like that. But the big three are up node, down node, and jump to zero. A newfound form of cheapness in stocks for large quantitative firms over the last you know, 10 years has increasingly and in different waves been high default risk stocks. Because if you say that a stock is intrinsically cheap by 20% because the market is overestimating its chance for failure and you lop off that third node or assign it a probability of zero, all of a sudden it's cheap, right? So when we watch investor behavior in the market and we see how this plays out, there have been different waves where you know, default high, high dividend stocks would perform very well on a relative basis. And then they sort of change their focus. I say they, like large institutional equity buying, changes the focus from, you know, buying or chasing dividend yield to all of a sudden accumulating and pushing up the relative performance of risky stocks or high default risk stocks. It's something that we observe on a daily basis. I've continually been frustrated that people aren't focused enough on this. And that's why this you know, topic sort of knocked me off my chair. I was like, this is an opportunity to talk to a broader audience about why corporate insolvency default probability actually matters for equity investors. Well, I, I think the clearest example of this is some of the ways that you know, companies have declared bankruptcy and the stock has gone up because right. people are, it's essentially, it you know like buy they're, they're buying the news <laughs> um mm-hmm. or or buying the rumor or thinking that it's just a rumor like i i yeah. don't know how to how to think about it i mean hertz is one that comes to mind are there yeah. any good case studies of this from the past few months that you think perfectly exemplify this problem of the market just totally disregarding insolvency risk in its pricing of equities and then we i think we should talk as well about credits the you know credit spreads and how yeah. that plays in too because it starts there it starts in the credit spreads and then it plays yeah. its way into the equities it does and you know it's a really confusing mix of um, components and it's not the same to your point of a couple of examples it's not the same for every company so for example PG&E is a complicated situation where they've been on 
you know, the, the doorstep of bankruptcy or insolvency for years. Um, but one of the most attractive assets that PG&E has is they have a huge pile of, um, of tax write-offs, of losses that whoever acquires them can use as a tax offset on an ongoing basis. So the equity is actually worth something because of the tax benefit of all of the losses they've accumulated. So you bring up a good point, which is that you can't paint with a broad brush across all um, scenarios. You have to sort of think about it, you know, in idiosyncratic terms or in different buckets. So some of the very high profile insolvencies have strange nuances to them. Um, I will say that from my personal experience, one thing that one situation that shattered the the precedent for bankruptcy and the relative positioning of equity stakeholders versus credit stakeholders was General Motors, you know, in in 08, 09. So, um, you know, the way things shake out now, uh, it's it's a little bit different. Hertz, you know, people's idea around Hertz is that Hertz is not going to go away. It's a valuable brand. They will survive. They will can they will carry on. Um, it's just a matter of who's going to take the markdown and. You know, are the equity stakeholders going to get wiped out and the bondholders get recovery, you know, uh, on the assets and then they move forward with a reorganization or will they bail out the equity stakeholders and the debt and move forward? You know, that it's sort of it, it has a lot to do with the incentives of the current stakeholders of the company and who wants to come in and try to take control and reorganize the company. Um, what I think is more important to the to broader equity universe or equity investors is, you know, the stuff that's not big, high profile bankruptcies, um, things that are you know, part of the high yield index. Um, and, you know, what we look at, there, there's a, there are a number of factors that you can look at to observe this. Um, but maybe the best one that everybody has access to is the Russell 2000, right? It's a, it's an index of 2000 stocks that are relatively small cap. So if anybody wants to look at this at home on on any service, you can you can spread the different differential of performance between the Russell 2000 and say the S&P and, or the Nasdaq and take a look at that. And the way that I describe it is that when people are looking to add risk to their equity portfolio but not change the amount of risk they're taking in dollar terms they will rotate out of the s p and move into the nasdaq or the russell 2000 so you can see in periods of time when the high yield credit spread is tightening you tend to see the russell 2000 outperform um, the s p just because people are sort of accepting more credit risk right so um, buying high yield bonds, uh, you know, at a relatively tighter spread or higher price, is a, a signal of increasing confidence in those underlying companies. The same is true if you see outperformance or movement up in the underlying equities of the company. But this is where we get into the nuance of of capital structure, right? Where um, in, when a company fails, traditionally speaking, the equity stakeholders get nothing. And the bondholders get the you know distributed recovery of the assets. Um, in a post-General Motors world, that's not the way things always work. And we also see a lot of people chasing risky stocks or you know buying them as a new form of cheapness. And I, it makes me cringe to see that behavior happening blindly. And that's you know again one of those things that I want to raise my hand and say, you know, back to a mantra that I've said here before is know your risk and get paid for it. Kind of works in the other direction too. Like 
if you don't know what your risk is, you can't really be sure that you're being compensated for it. And I see a lot of blind uh, or, you know, accidental accumulation of risk that people might not fully appreciate. And a lot of it comes down to default. And, um, you know, I think if we do see a wave of defaults move through the market above, you know, the retail sector and, and some of the consumer discretionary stuff that we've already seen, I think there could be some nasty uh, outcomes that people didn't predict. So you talked about GM and it being a post GM world, yeah. I guess, is the market <laughs> acting as if everything is GM, that everything uh-huh. is too big to wipe out? And that's the misperception that they're having is that they're taking that that GM sort of case study and applying it to every single equity, regardless of its systematic importance. Yeah, the, you know, that that's a good point. And I think that there is some uh, some bid or some appetite for distressed equities because there's money to go after those type of strategies. So if you run an asset management firm that, you know, specializes in distressed situations or workouts, there's not a whole lot of stuff to do. You know, it's relatively small in number, but it's going to be greater. And we've seen more people raising money for that. So what you need to do to get control of a situation there is you either need to establish a position on the on the credit side of the scenario or you need to establish a position as a you know equity stakeholder in the company to sort of start to vocalize your opinion about how the reorganization is going to work so um yeah there's some confusion about you know how dip financing works and who's in control in a bankruptcy um but you know again what we see is just sort of like a, a, a accidental accumulation of credit risk in stocks. And I know that may sound a little bit um, confusing or it may sound a little counterintuitive, but from our seat, we see it happen you know, relatively frequently. And you know, in the smaller scale names, the less high profile names, the non-PG&E, the non-Hertz type situations, equity stakeholders, generally speaking, don't do well in bankruptcy. Okay. So I guess, you know, in my perception of the market, there are some companies that are, their equity price is more acutely driven by the credit risk. Like Apple, Mm -hmm. I would say that daily movements in the price of Apple are probably not highly correlated with movements in their credit spreads, which I doubt, which I doubt are moving very much. So at what point does the equity price start to um, really, really be correlated with what the credit is doing? And what should you yeah. be looking for to determine if it's if it's acting funny? Yes. What, so the question you just posed is the holy grail of capital structure arbitrage. And um, it's, you know, there are a lot of people and many uh, papers written on the topic of stochastic credit analysis and and things of that nature. But roughly speaking, from a sort of classical standpoint, equity is a call option on the assets of a company above the debt holder's valuation. So if a company has four hundred million of debt and the the assets of the company are six hundred million, then recovery for the debt is par or a hundred percent. And the equity stakeholders own a call option on the residual assets. You know, other people would argue that it's slightly different or that the formula should be more elegant than that, but that's a rough back of the envelope calculation. So when you start to get a market capitalization that erodes to a point where you, let's say that the market cap of a company drops to 250 million, but they owe 400 million in debt. 
Now, some of it has to do with how near term is that debt. And some of it has to do with the seniority of, of the claim. And some of it has to do with the nature of the business, right? Some companies are just in sectors are more highly levered by nature. So, you know, biotech companies, for example, tend to be relatively low market cap, high debt. They're levering up to, you know, spend the money on trials and research. And if they, if they get it right, it's an exponential return. Um, and if they don't, then you know there are a couple of different outcomes. But the the question you asked is a very important one. And as market caps drop below the sort of the value of the debt, then you start to get into what in in sort of academic terms they'd refer to as the zone of insolvency. And and so that's where you have to start worrying about it. We're not necessarily there yet from a market standpoint, but we're certainly at a point where. If you increase the implied default rates in high yield, if you actually take up the actual defaults that we experience in the high yield market, then this is going to become front page news and something that people are going to be studying up on very quickly. So that your, your question is, is the question, in my opinion, for the next 12 months. All right. So, you know, market caps, I guess you should be watching them relative to debt levels creeping down. And as we get closer and closer to that even level, that would be an indicator that this insolvency phase is is coming. Yeah. Um, up to this point, we've really focused on the what you would consider to be um, you know, uh, taking undue risk and people buying these equities, uh, basically, you know, pricing the default risk at zero. But we have a question from MKS in the audience who says, I've recently been looking at puts for betting on insolvency results. Um, and he's finding that you can get like five to 10x returns in terms of um, insolvency bets. And he says he's looking at GM, Ford, SPG and airlines. Um, okay. Is that a reasonable type of return structure for the, you know, the likelihood of a default? What should, if somebody is trying to bet on these defaults using yeah. puts on equities, what type of, you know, uh, payout ratio should people be looking for to feel comfortable with a bet like that? Yeah. So that's, that's a very sophisticated question and um, could warrant a long conversation. But I, I would say, Generally speaking, the first thing that comes to mind is that you have to be careful on your timing, right? Because if you if you get everything else right and you you understand the fundamentals of the situation perfectly, and you buy December puts against you know any one of those names, and then the insolvency happens in February, you you have a problem on your hands because you you've spent premium to bet on a scenario that doesn't play out in your time frame. So I think you have to be careful about your assumptions around timing. Um, being short credit is it has been and is an expensive trade. One of the reasons why more people don't do it is because the cost of carrying the positions to bet against things is expensive. And um, it's the borrow rate, it's having to pay the yield on credit if you're you know taking a short position. Um, and so you just have to be careful on timing. you know don't don't just quite I would ask a lot of questions around your timing and um, I would avoid um, precise determinations around insolvency because there's nothing precise about it. And I've seen so many situations working through these um, scenarios where you know, it, it seems obvious that this is going to happen by March, but it drags out until September or you, know, you get a surprise announcement that happens sooner than you thought. So just be careful on timing. Um, as far as the, the payoff goes, I mean, I think you have to look at things 
within the specific situation of you know where the incentives are aligned. And one of the reasons why General Motors became sort of a poster child for um, for this type of situation is because the the retirement system of General Motors was almost entirely invested in GM stock. So if you let GM stock go to zero, you're going to wipe out the entire the retirement. So one of the reasons why they threw out 100 plus years of bankruptcy precedent in the GM situation is because they would have wiped out a quarter million pensioners and that wasn't a palatable uh, result. So they basically bailed out the equity when they bailed out the credit. And a lot of credit holders were like, wait, you can't do that. And they said, here we go. You know, so that's um, you kind of have to know who's involved on which side of the, the balance sheet, you know, the equity and the credit side of the balance sheet. Be careful about timing. And as far as payoffs go, um, you know, you have to that's where you need to get into the weeds on recovery a little bit, right? Because with a company, um, it, sometimes it, it's in everybody's interest to not let the equity go to zero and to bail out the company and let them carry on as a as a existing and functioning company um, in order to not scuttle the business model. And so there are other incentives that can be in, in play. So I would avoid just broad strokes on, you know, a payoff ratio that works for every situation. You kind of have to get your hands dirty on each one to make sure you're positioned right. But probably the biggest one is just be careful of timing. Okay. And, and I just wanted to clarify, these are puts on equity, I think. Yeah. MKS. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think the, um, the, you know, be careful on timing because, you know, the debt holders, you know, when you get into a distressed situation, the debt holders are really driving the, the discussions. And if they're long credit, don't forget that they're earning a lot of money um, while they wait, right? Because if you get to a situation in a distressed credit scenario where the yield is 10, 12%, even if it's accruing, you know, monies paid that need to be paid, it, it strengthens their position and they're in you know, their incentives are different than the equity stakeholders. So if they have the ability to change the timeline to, you know, to sort of affect different outcomes, you just have to be aware of that. Um, from a, you know, from a payoff profile standpoint, um, I think you, you know, just shooting from the hip here, my compliance is probably going to, you know, give me a tap, but I would say that five to one is like for a payoff for equity puts on an insolvency is a little bit low. Um, I would expect just intuitively, if you are looking to bet on the potential failure of a company and take a position in equity puts that you should be, you know, you should be seeking something north of five to one. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Okay. All right. And then I guess that brings up a question about, you, know, you talk about timing, um, taking very, very short dated puts where the premium is much cheaper and rolling the position versus paying out for duration. Um, yeah. Somebody is betting on insolvency. Is there any historical um, evidence as to which one is the better way to go? If you're looking to basically have some, if you're not sure how long it's going to take, should you go way out in duration yeah. or should you be rolling these very, very cheap puts with, with low probability? Yeah. So sometimes the market answers that for you. And the, the, what I mean by that is that in these distressed situations, oftentimes the offer on down and out puts is non-existent or it's so expensive that 
you wouldn't you wouldn't consider it. And the things that come into play there, there are a number of them. Um, when you get into a distressed situation, um, the stock loan on these names or the cost of carrying a short position starts to get very expensive. And there's there's sort of a parity that that happens between um, the securities lending rate and the high yield spread for that specific situation. So if you can earn 15% by being long credit and you could maintain an equity short position and carry that at say just 1%, um, you know, generically speaking, that seems like there's a little bit of a mispricing in that situation. Now there are nuances to every situation that that can account for that sort of stuff. But I guess my point is, is that short dated puts tend to be more of the name of the game for um, you know betting on insolvency because it's super expensive to carry long dated puts um, when things get truly distressed. If you can get positioned ahead of them getting truly distressed, you can benefit from that, right? So um, let's say that you're ahead of the curve and you've done all the research on the on a company that you're certain is going to fail um, or is going to run into credit trouble or you want to bet against it one way or another. By taking a longer term position in the puts, you can benefit a couple of different ways. You can have directional downside exposure. You can also have beneficial exposure to the stock loan rate going higher as the situation erodes. So it kind of depends on your entry point. If you're if you're ahead of everybody else, then probably a better idea to look further out on the curve. Um, if you're sort of diving into an active situation, just be careful of the long dated stuff because it you know it prices in a lot of other funky things like borrow rate and recovery and things like that. Okay. We actually have had on somebody in the past who who is a credit investor who, uh, for the reasons you said, doesn't like to get short credit and, and does that sort mm -hmm. of holding the credit and gets um, short equity puts. Uh, I would recommend anybody, Dan Zwern, um, if you just search mm -hmm. Dan Zwern, you'll, you'll find the piece. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of his firm. I think it's Arena Investors. Um, so I would recommend that to all of our viewers and maybe to you as well, Matt, to check that yeah. one out. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, but I do want to get through some other questions that we got. Uh, this one I think is a really good one to sort of broaden the conversation. Srini wants to know what sectors are most leveraged and at risk of default. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to expand that question to say, how do you what 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 does default risk look like to you, and where do you start looking? Yeah, so that's okay. That's a great question, and you it, it actually works into something that you mentioned earlier, which was um, in the question from was it MKAS? I think MKAS. Um, I am sure yeah. that's a so, three letters acronym. You you mentioned airlines, so um, I think airlines are a specifically challenged business model right now in this current environment, right? Revenues are down, cost of operations have you know, stayed relatively static. They're, they have a serious problem, but they're also on the top of the list of companies that rightfully should be asking for some sort of government assistance. And every time the conversation of airline insolvency comes up, people in the credit world will chime in and say, it's a revolving door, right? Like if, if you know history, airlines are, are a revolving door of bankruptcy or reorganization or restructuring. And people will frequently point to Amtrak as well as an example of, well, look, things get bad enough. The government you know, took over Amtrak at one point because it is the main line service for the, the Northeast. Um, you know, the, the economy can't function without airlines. So we, we need 
it's a it's a systematically important or systemically important um, function. So be careful applying broader assumptions of bankruptcy and insolvency to, to airlines because there are forces at play that um, you know cause things to happen in ways that only make sense to airlines. So um, as far as what sector is most at risk, uh, you know I think small cap consumer discretionary um, that is competing with Amazon, Walmart, Target uh, is probably at the top of the list of things that I would say intuitively. Um, retail, of course, uh, especially retail that requires foot traffic and um, relatively small footprint. Um, you know, it's hard to watch the struggle of small businesses against the likes of Amazon, Walmart, and Target because they can't adapt and do online delivery or online shopping, um, ship to home, pick up in the parking lot, you know, all of these different um, flexibilities that the larger companies can can display and can give to customers. Um, you know, so I, I think personally, it's sort of hard to watch smaller businesses fail because they can't compete with that. But from an investment standpoint, that's the reality, right? So if, um, if the world is moving forward in a more careful fashion from a uh, physical interaction standpoint, I think um, that's a big consideration. Also, the, you know, the economy without some form of fiscal stimulus that has a meaningful push to it, you know, Powell has been very straightforward about this. Most people without being partisan about this um, would agree that, you know, without stimulus, the economy is worse off than the stock market is pricing right now. The part of the stock market's pricing in some probability in some number for stimulus. So if we don't get some follow through there, you know, there will, that could be a catalyst for, for more defaults and more bankruptcies. So, um, you know, I, th I think discretionary spending, retail, uh, you know, things like home builders have been doing really, really well, but don't forget the cost of lumber, right? Like if you watch, if you're watching home builders and say, well, there's this huge amount of demand for new homes and prices are going up and the lumber futures in the last three months, if I remember correctly, I don't want to pull it up right now, but I think they've more than doubled. So the cost of building a house has gone up considerably. Um, so there's a, there's, you just have to kind of get your hands dirty on it, but I'd say retail and consumer discretionary. Okay, that was all very qualitative, very much looking at the economy. Is there maybe a um, a more quantitative, like a screen you could run, yeah. where you go through something looking at, you know, debt outstanding? How sure. soon is the debt coming? Like, should you be yeah. worried about insolvency for a company that doesn't have debt due in the next eighteen months? Yeah, well, that's that's a important consideration. So. When thinking about stochastic credit analysis, or basically looking at you know the equity and the vol or the equity and and the credit of a company, um, the, the old VAR model is one where you're sort of trying to take the volatility of an equity as an indicator of risk. So you're you're sort of watching investors' behavior or skittishness and using that as a proxy for the risk um, factor of a stock. So as you see a stock reverberating around, you know, if it's moving around in a tight channel and then all of a sudden it starts to swing wildly, you know, you are theoretically increasing the probability of default. So what I would watch is a couple of things. If you want to screen for high default risk stocks or, you know, names where the default probability is increasing, you can watch for 
Um, if you can calculate and observe the credit spread of the capital structure, that's one. Um, and if it's widening, that's a worsening situation. If the volatility of the underlying equity is increasing uh, while the credit spread is widening, that's also a secondary indicator that the situation is getting more precarious. Um, if you have short-term uh, debt that's coming into focus, so I would say inside of two years, um, debt holders start engaging with management to renegotiate or restructure or ask for what's the plan to pay us off when maturity shows up. Um, and so a company where puts are super expensive, the credit spread is wide, the volatility of the underlying equity is high, and they have short dated debt, like that's a very, very precarious situation. So if you want to screen for you know, names and you, you were using those four components, um, I think that's probably a good place to start for a quantitative screen. Okay. Um, and then Srini had another question, which is, is there a way to find out the debt ladder of a company? Mm -hmm. There is. Um, it depends on the data service that you sign up for, but um, in, in various systems, you know, Bloomberg, Reuters, whatever you use, and there are, you know, plenty of places to get this um, in a in a free form too. Um, but you're basically looking for the the cap the, the whole capital structure, right? So in um, I I use Bloomberg, and this isn't a you know promotion for Bloomberg, but like in Bloomberg you can do DDIS David David Indigo Sam, and that shows you the distribution of the um, of the debt. And so I actually, I mean, I don't want to turn away from the, the group, but like, you know, it's, it'll show you a bar chart and say, you know, there's a term loan that's due, there's, you know, an unsecured debenture that's due and, and show it to you on a timeline. So that's, that's one way to look at it. You can look at company filings though, directly and see, you know, the, the debt and the maturity of the debt. Um, but, you know, it takes, takes a bit of reading to get through. Yeah. Um, okay. So I have a couple of other questions here. Let's see. Um, Bernard wants to know, based on your experience, what is the pivotal point when a company realizes they will do nothing but burn cash and pivot towards servicing their debt and close business? Does that ever really happen, um, or do they, you know, put their heart and soul into this? Oh, he says here they put their heart and soul to this, and it's hard to say goodbye. So, yeah. do companies hold on longer than they should, and does that provide an opportunity? Um, yeah, it does, and that's that's a great observation. Um, so, when distressed situations are becoming distressed, there's sort of an interaction between the debt holders and the equity holders, and at some point. From a legal precedent standpoint, the management of the company's responsibility shifts from maximizing shareholder value to defending the value of the assets that are due to the bondholders in a recovery. And it's a nonspecific uh, sort of amorphous line that's referred to as the zone of insolvency. So if a company, if a bond, like if, if Bernard was a bondholder in, in a company and um, the, the company was having a rough time, the stock price was dropping, its business prospects were, were falling. And Bernard would say to the, to the CEO and the CFO, you know, hey, look, I, I think you have entered into the zone of insolvency and your responsibility is now to me and the other bondholders to preserve and defend the assets of the company uh, because the probability of default is high enough that like, that's warranted. So in a lot of cases, there's a non-specific conversation that happens between debt holders and the management of the company. Most often, management of companies is incentivized by stock options or some sort of alignment of 
return um, on the equity side. So they tend to be, you know, operate and predisposed to to behaving that way. Um, but it, it's not always the case, and, and it's not the same for everyone. But anybody who is a bondholder or is thinking about getting involved as an investor on the debt side of the the situation should know that that becomes part of their rights in in the negotiation. Is that you have you can give the management a nudge and say like, hey. You know, you can't be paying out a seven percent dividend to equity stakeholders when the next coupon payment's in question, right? Like it's an extreme example, but that's the type of stuff that you know that gets shut down. Uh, would you say that that is you know going towards qualitative screens here? Um, yeah. Is that something maybe a management that is extremely incentivized to to play ball with equity holders and also has some of those uh, quantitative factors maybe gives you a better chance of of finding you know uh, going back to MKS like a disproportionate payout ratio because they're yeah. so focused on this other side. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I would say yes. In most cases, you know, there's um, it, it really depends on who's involved in the in the situation, and um, the debt holders have a lot of tools at their disposal once it becomes more officially announced that the debt holders are engaged to either, you know, if there's a two year maturity and they're saying, hey, let's do a debt for debt swap, we'll swap, you know, two year bonds for five year bonds, but these need to be the terms, right? It gets more expensive for the company. And then the, the management of the company needs to then turn around to the equity stakeholders and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to restructure the debt. And they say, well, we don't like those terms. And they have, to, they have to stand up to the equity stakeholders and say, it's what we need to do to survive. Or, you know, we don't have any other options. Or we could, you know, companies are always looking at this and saying, well, you know, the, the ultimate would be a management team saying to the equity stakeholders, you don't want us to raise debt. That's fine. So why don't we do another equity round, you know, at current prices, you know, there you go. You can vote with your wallet. So um, it, it becomes a bit of a tug of war that's more high profile than a normal state. And that's the thing that drives me nuts about the last, you know, 2017 was a perfect example. The, the mantra in 2017 was buy anything you can get your hands on and lever it up. Didn't matter what it was. You know, if, if it had a 1% chance of defaulting, like it's 1% you know, too cheap, right? So um, people were hoovering up risk and levering it up uh, in, a, in a grind higher. And, you know, now that we're seeing more of a, an emergence of relative value strategies and people contemplating, you know, default probability and like the potential for this type of situation, like we're now back into more of a relative value, long, short framework where, you know, people are, are feeling encouraged about being able to um, bet on winners and bet against losers. Whereas, the last few years, 2017 was just buy everything. 2018 and 19 were more like, well, you know, be long only, but just be careful about what you're long. And 2020 has changed to, you know, not only be careful about what you're long, but maybe it's a good idea to layer in some hedge or, you know, short alpha because not everybody's going to make it. Okay. Well, we got a question in from DRock about the VIX. Uh, I'm just going to let DRock know that I'm just saving that for the end. We're going to get through the, this credit question, uh, these credit questions, and then we can we can talk VIX. Cool. Um, Always good to get a question from somebody named DRock too. By the way, That's... I know, right? <laughs> Especially uh, when did you ever think in your life somebody named DRock would be asking you about the term structure of the VIX? Yeah, uh, that's right. I love it. Yeah. So, um, but we did get a question from Russell that says, would you agree that if we don't get stimulus, we're all GM shareholders? Yeah. Um, yes. And that's, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, so there, yes, the, the short answer is yes. And I think that there are variations of that. You know, people, you can think about the way Japan is um, and you can take some pretty extreme, uh, you know, examples or like think about this in, in looking forward in a couple of extreme ways where, you know, if the government, the, the Fed is currently buying high yield bond or, or fallen angel credit, right? And um, if, one of the reasons why I find it concerning that the you know the the high yield names and the super distressed stuff started rallying on the Fed buying high yield in May was because it's just a propagation or an extension of that idea that they're they're actually buying credit. So the the thought is, or what's implied in the market is, well, if they're buying this now, if they're buying fallen angel credit now, if things get worse, they're going to go further out on the curve and. You know, what if they start buying, you know, the debt of all companies in the U.S.? Then if if it ends up being the case that the government bails out every company and, you know, we as citizens are all shareholders of the, you know, the one holding company of everything, then the, then what? Right. Like that starts to get kind of confusing. But, um, you know, I think. Yeah, the the short answer and is that's yeah. what you see with the the Japanese stock market. Like they are yeah. basically they they own their own stock market, and we can see what the returns are long term yeah. for for when that happens. Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess that kind of opens up the the table to assuming that Raul is right and you were right about some of these risks and everything comes to fruition. What is it going to look like in a broader sense for the market? Where are the, you know, how is it going to play out? We can talk about step by step. We can say this is how it'll start. This is how it will end. But yeah. what is it? What is a true insolvency phase going to look like? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I think so. The challenge, right? Like to come back to General Motors again for a second, right? General Motors had to bail out their equity because either these 250,000 pensioners were going to lose their benefits and the government was going to have to take care of them anyway or they could prop up the company and they you know could carry on and, and the viba wasn't going to get wiped out and they could service their pensioners independently so i think it was sort of viewed as either way the government's paying for it or either way like the system needs to support these people so we just need to figure out the most efficient way to do that and i do think we're sort of facing a system-wide general motors moment where you know, we have high unemployment, right? Like we have, um, we have a lot of people who have lost their job and we have a lot of people who will lose their job if defaults increase. And so what do you do? Do you, you know, do you prop up the companies that would otherwise be employing these people or does the government just give direct, um, you know, benefit in the form of unemployment benefits or, or other to the people who are out of work? And so it, it does become a system-wide problem but i think you know there's a there's a tug and tug of war that goes on between the fed saying well we can't buy bonds of companies that we know are going to fail we can't knowingly go into a situation and lose money that's sort of the 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 limit for for them of what they can and can't do um and i think the fiscal stimulus portion you know the, the us economy roughly speaking is about 24 trillion in gdp 
And the idea in March when we were facing an economy shutdown due to COVID um, was, well, stimulus can do some form of replacing GDP destruction that's a result of the, the pandemic. And so in rough numbers, you can think about, all right, if we're replacing 25% or one quarter's worth of GDP, we're looking at $6 trillion, right? Just to put these numbers in perspective when Pelosi and um, you know, Mnuchin are, are talking about back and forth about these things. Um, so, yeah, I think you know, the, the government is, you can look at it in a couple of different ways, but they're effectively replacing GDP destruction. And where do we come out on the other side of the pandemic? Like, are, are, we, are we a different economy? Do we revert back to uh, an economy that newly embraces mom and pop stores and, you know, hugging people and shaking hands? Like, I, it kind of depends on what the social response is to the, the the pandemic and how people want and feel comfortable doing business going forward. But it doesn't seem reasonable to think that we're going to bounce back to, you know, the way things were in Christmas of 2019, as far as the comfort level of interacting and the way we shop and the way we sort of do business. So. Well, I think really interestingly is going back to that GM period, there was no precedent for stimulus, for checks right. going directly to people for unemployment. And yeah. arguably there was political backlash to the bailouts of these companies, to bailing out the banks. And yeah. if you look, uh, there seems to be at least, you know, there seems to be some appetite out there in in the public for stimulus, and there does seem as well to be some pushback against bailouts. And so now that the politicians, it might not be the most efficient way. Like they might have looked at the situation at GM and determined that that doing the bailout and uh, and having them, you know, keep keep their their pensioners afloat themselves was the best yeah. way to do it. But in some senses. There's a political aspect to it where it's not even really about what is the most efficient way to replace this GDP, but it's also what's the most politically palatable way. And there yeah. has been major changes in what can be done. And so that might be, in my mind, that's one of the reasons why I think that there is greater insolvency risk going now than looking back is because – there is a mechanism. There is a policy mechanism to help those people out who are hurt most by the insolvency that doesn't involve what politically is viewed as corporate welfare. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in most cases within the business realm, I try to be apolitical or try to, you know, make factual statements as opposed to, uh, you know, making a political one but you're yeah i'm just trying to this is more game theory of like how yeah no that, i'm not saying that, like that, this that is was, what that i wasn't i wasn't tagging you with doing that i'm more like caveating my response that i'm about to give right now yeah yeah, yeah. Um, that uh you know there is a lot of discussion around who is actually fiscally conservative right the the part of the partisan dialogue is you know who owns the the pedestal of fiscal conservatism and um and what does that mean? And, and is it actually like when it's all said and done, like what's the side that they would take on this sort of stuff, right? So I think you're right. I mean, we, we started to hear the concept of helicopter money during 08, 09, right? Like the, the checks that were just going out to people, but that was new. That was something that people were sort of like, oh, that's a good idea. Like that'll bridge the gap a little bit. And like they called it helicopter money because they didn't have any other term for it, right? They didn't even use the term stimulus at that at that point, or at least it wasn't sort of widely discussed. Um, and we've also had, you know, commentary from the ECB and from Draghi on, you know, concepts that sort of rattle people's way of thinking, like whatever it takes, right? Like 
that's something that resonated with everybody in the investment world. Like, wow, does he really mean that? Is he, is the ECB really going to be prepared to do whatever it takes to avoid, you know, further, further meltdown or to, to support the economic growth? Um, that, those are the types of statements that, you know, people who are trading put skew need to be very, very, very acutely attuned to because, you know, if, if the Fed is, like this, this comes back to the big debate that we've talked about before. Like, what's the strike of the Fed put, right? Like, how far would they let the equity market fall before they stepped in and started buying stocks? Um, and, you know, there's no answer. But some people sell puts because they figure, well, look, if I sell a 500 strike put on the S&P and I end up losing money on that, like, I got a lot bigger problems and so does everybody else than, like, whatever money I just lost on that trade. So there's some idea that if you go far enough out in the tails that it doesn't really matter. Um, but it's why it's why I'm, I don't buy the physical, the need to have physical, like, if I need to get my hands on my gold, like, I'd yeah. rather have, I'd rather have guns or food or, <laughs> right. like, so many other yeah. things. So that's why I'm not... Yeah. Like I'm fine with GLD. I'm fine with it. Yeah. No. I, I think like if you have to take physical possession of something for the, that same utility, I'm. I would say I'm with you. I'd rather have, you know, ten pair of running shoes like shrink wrapped in my closet than an ounce of gold, right? Because like number one, it's already divided into ten pieces. So if I needed to trade it for something, I have something, and I can put them on my feet, and I can run faster than the next guy. So you know, um, yeah, I I would agree with that. But I think the the, the question of, um, you know, aren't we all like, isn't the whole system kind of like GM? That's a, that's a very, that's exactly the way I think about it. I, I think, you know, if you go far and if you push the system far enough, like they're going to have to figure out a way we as a population are going to have to figure out a way to sort of take care of ourselves, right? Like it, it switches from watching the politicians do whatever they're going to do and, and, you know, try to make policy and argue one way or another to like, how are we actually going to function? Right. Like, and, and I think that at some point, you know, Japan's a great example because the citizens basically do own the equity market there, right? And um, you can see how it's performed. You can see what's happened to interest rates. You can see what happened to credit spreads, you know, um, you know there, and there are precedents for this in the US too, right? Like they take the state of Alaska. If you live in the state of Alaska, you do or did, or I'm not sure the current state of it, but you get a dividend because you live there because there's business function that's generating profits where they feel the need to redistribute it back to the citizens. And so um, it's just going to, you know, we're going to have to see where we go. But I think part of this is that without a real recovery in the economy, without a real return to business activity and risk-taking that, you know, we've seen before on the small business level, we're going to need stimulus. And without stimulus, we do have, you know, the, without taking sides politically, the stock market is currently priced for stimulus. If they came out today and said there will be no stimulus ever going forward, um, you know, as a statement from both sides, I think the stock market would probably drop 15%. Um, so, you know, I think it's fair to say that it's priced in. It's just a matter of what, to what degree. Okay. Well, we have three questions. Um, one of them being that vol question for the end. I would like to get through these and then we can wrap it up. Um, but before we get to DRock's question, we got two more questions from MKS and Russell. Uh, we'll start with MKS. So if the government does take all the assets of the zombie companies they bought into, did they just sell those assets for the cheap to those in the know? He says he's worried about further income inequality. So, so what happens after they buy the assets? What are they going to do with them all? 
Well, I mean, I guess it sort of depends on what, like how they would do it. So let's just say hypothetically through the mechanism that's available to them now, let's say that there's a company that's, you know, a fallen angel credit, which just to, to be clear, that's an investment grade company that's being relegated to high yield, right? It's not a, it's not a really high default risk um, type name, but it's something that's eroding, right? Let's just take an example like that that goes from IG to high yield, and then it quickly slips into distressed territory. So let's say that the Fed were to have bought bonds in this company as it's sort of sliding, and then it gets to a point of insolvency. Number one, I don't know what the policy is for the Fed if they get to a high default probability situation. They might end up actually technically and legally be a forced seller. Because, because they have it, to own high quality assets. Right. So, so that's a waterfall scenario that we've actually talked about that I don't know like I don't know if anybody knows what the mechanism is for that and it's never, um, it's never happened. Yeah. So so you have that potential, but if they did end up being a bondholder and um, owning it all the way into insolvency, then technically they would become the receiver of the recovery that the company gives and and most often the assets are liquidated and then the recovery is delivered to bondholders in the form of dollars, not in physical assets. So um, the, the people who benefit from inefficient liquidation of assets and bankruptcies are, wouldn't always be the bondholder, I guess, if that, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, I think it's part of the reason why you see a lot of hedge funds out there right now gathering money for relative value and distressed credit plays. And some, some news stories have said, like, there aren't that many distressed credit opportunities. Why are people gathering money to invest in distressed credit? And they're, they, put up their finger and they say, there aren't now, but there will be, right? So that's sort of to Ralph's point and, and why I'm spurred to say something is like, it seems pretty clear that if things keep going the way that they are, that we will see an increase in implied and actual defaults. And that's where that sort of strategy kicks in. So you're almost talking like the second derivative of, so there's the distressed people who are going in, who are buying the bonds while they're cheap and they're getting the recovery. And then there's like another group of people who are buying the assets that are being sold to make that recovery and they're getting a deal too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, if that I think someone that, who's like an operator or a real estate investor or yeah, yeah they have, yeah. they usually have a specialty as to why they want to buy that asset. That's right. And, you know, if you think back to, to 08, 09, you had, bonds on companies with real tangible assets trading below recovery value because people lost their ability to fund those trades, right? So that was an opportunity to buy, to make a distressed purchase of good assets without actually having to go through a default cycle. You know, the, what seems to be the next wave is that um, people aren't lining up to necessarily do that. I think it's more a matter of, um, you know, will we see an increase in implied and actual defaults and, and then what, what happens to it? But in a world where the 30 year is yielding 1.4%, right? Like people's incentives to take risk um, are a lot different. You know, if you can, if you can get seven, 8% on, on credit, I mean, the high yield index, I think is yielding like 350 over something like that, 345. Um, from memory, which which means that you're actually yielding 345 over the five years, so that's going to be 3.7 percent. That's not a whole lot of return, right? You can make or lose that in one day in the Nasdaq. So um, it's you know there, there's a weird relative value dynamic that's in play that creates a lot of good opportunities for people like us, but it also you know it's something 
that people need to be aware of, you know, on the equity side of it. Okay. And then the, the final question related to this is if the government does end up stepping in and, and protecting these companies that are defaulting and bailing everyone out, uh, is that an inflationary impulse? And uh, if so, uh, what are your thoughts on gold? <laughs> um, well, is it an inflationary impulse? Um, maybe more stagflationary, I guess, would be my reaction. Because if we're in a situation where the government needs to be taking that type of action, then they might be inflating the assets um, without any growth, right? So we may actually be in a in a in an economic cycle of contraction or stagnation, um, but the assets are getting pushed up, right? So we kind of see that. In my opinion, we've been seeing some semblance of that with house prices and lumber prices moving up the way that they have. Um, partly spurred by the migration out of cities and into suburban areas, but also, you know, with gold, silver, um, other, you know, the equity market, um, particularly large cap tech, um, you know, you see evidence of inflation of risk assets, and at the same time, you see stagnation in economic uh, activity. So, uh, I'm surprised that word doesn't come up more, honestly. Um, but I, you know, I think it's. It's, it's more driving a wedge between asset prices and risk, I guess. Um, and in between that wedge is where stimulus fits, right? So like, as in my opinion, the way I think about it graphically in my head is that you get this, this elevation of risk asset pricing in houses and stocks and gold and silver, things like that. And it's, it's become decoupled from economic, independent economic productivity. And the wedge that supports that differential is stimulus. Okay. All right. So that, that gets us through our credit questions. We have uh, a couple of vault guys who are, who are taking advantage of your appearance today sure. to get their questions in. And I, I feel we have, we owe them a little something. Sure. Um, so one question from DRock and then one from Christopher, and we'll close it out there. Um, so DRock wants to know, what do you make of the spike in the VIX term structure in November, supposedly because of the election? Is this mispriced? And is there all, is this already priced into the equity market? Hmm. So the last part, I don't know. I, the last, the last part of it, I don't think it's already priced into the equity market. I do think that there's a little bit of a, um, from a probabilistic distribution standpoint, it seems to me that the potential for the market to go up um, versus down looks like the odds are sort of off. Like I think the downside tail doesn't seem like it's priced into the equity market in the same way that it's being priced into the VIX curve and put skew, for example. Um, so last last question first, the first part, the why is the curve moved from October to November? I think um, it's something that I, I actually just gave a comment about in Barron's a couple of days ago, where it it's no secret that the the election's not gonna be decided on the night of election day and that there's a plan from both sides that they're both preparing for uh, a long drawn out um, transfer, right? And, and some might point to comments from the administration that there will be no transfer, that there's gonna be a continuation. You know, like that type of commentary is why risk is getting priced out past the election um, and into November. So I don't think that we're going to see a smooth transition no matter what, I think the equity market is reasonably concerned about what that means. And that's why you're seeing it. Um, 
also don't forget the agency effect of uh you know of all of this right you have big investors around the world that are managing multi-generational wealth or you know retirement systems that are 100 year type things but most of the risk takers most of the people who are incentivized to take risk get paid on a rolling annual compensation scheme um, if you've bounced back and you're having a relatively decent year this year you don't want to give that back by being long into the election and getting you know getting wiped out right like your annual bonus is going to go away so there's some behavioral component to protecting annual gains that goes into pricing year-end put skew that you know can't be discounted but right now i mean we're in uncharted territory in a lot of different ways so i'm just guessing like everybody else um and that's that's my best guess okay all right final question is more uh, more generic and, and actually more about you know your your long vol strategy um, sure. so christopher wants to know if we're aiming to profit on long vol strategies like straddle should we focus getting the timing right more on the implied vol versus historic vol or should we mm. focus more on dealer gamma to see when the gamma flip will happen hmm um well, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, number one, because you can never get a perfect number on dealer gamma. Like, there are lots of different uh, you know, estimations and people put out different um, opinions or aggregations of what it is. But I've seen very credit worthy um, groups come up with numbers for different time periods that are off by, you know, five times right in in either direction and so um be careful where you get that information from because you know nobody agrees on it all the time um the other one is that i'd say most from a transaction cost standpoint and from a liquidity standpoint most of the activity is sort of in the front end of the curve and that's like three months and in and that that is because of a couple of things one the VIX traders and VIX arbitrageurs and relative value players are looking at like the front two and a half months um, for the active uh, VIX contract and then, you know, for the role. Um, and the most common reset or event in the market is earnings, which of course happens once a quarter. So there's more activity in the quarterly stuff. Um, the bid ask tends to be tighter. Uh, and you've got more gamma to them. You know, long dated options are very Vega driven, right? They, they make and lose money by the ebb and flow of implied volatility. Um, the gamma characteristics of longer dated options are more muted. The gamma of short dated options is explosive and the, the Vega is less important. So, you know, if you're playing for a move, you want to be, you want to be more geared towards the front end. If you're playing for an increase in implied volatility, you're going to benefit more from being um, longer dated, relatively speaking. Um, but I would just be very careful of like the longer dated stuff. Sometimes the bid ask and the liquidity is so nasty that you know you can you can eat up a big chunk of your potential return by crossing too bit of, big of a spread. So you know if you want Vega trades, like you want to make money when implied vol pops or drops, longer dated stuff. Um, if you want like explosive gamma, the shorter dated stuff is better. Okay. Well, Matt, thank you so much for doing this. It was a lot of fun. Sure. It was great yeah. to get uh, a Thanks. different perspective on the uh, potential for insolvency. Um, yep. Please please don't hesitate. If, if anything we ever have on inspires you again, please, please right. reach out. I'll raise my hand. I'll be the kid jumping around with my hands waving around. But I would say in closing too, you know, for anybody who's interested in this topic, you can you can look at the pricing of credit protection against puts on any single name that you want. And you can sort of back into 
um, you know, if you're involved in a situation or you're interested in looking at a situation, you know, take a look at single name CDS or like the credit spread of that particular company and you can price it against the puts and you can actually glean some pretty interesting uh, implied information there specifically, like what's the implied recovery rate. You know, if you think a company is going to fail in the next month and you think the recovery is 30 cents on the dollar for the bonds, you can do the math on both sides of the the equation and see where you you come out. And sometimes you can, you know, look, sometimes you can, if you know a situation well enough, you can get long the credit with a specific and known recovery, own puts on the company, and you can actually pair the two together and make money in an insolvency. So it's, you know, this is where it starts to get really interesting for distressed people. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I, I know that that's that might be uh, we we say playing above the rim for everybody, uh, for for a lot of people. Um, but I, I really enjoy you know doing this, getting to see yeah, how somebody somebody who lives above the rim uh, gets, gets to think about this stuff. So lots of fun, Matt, and uh, have a great weekend. Talk to you again you soon. Too. All right, great, thanks. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com